This weekend marked the one-year anniversary of the catastrophic train derailment in East Palestine that spilled hazardous materials and toxins into the environment. The spill forced hundreds of residents to leave their homes and caused widespread fear of health problems. Today, we discuss the ongoing impacts of that derailment. Join us as we discuss with reporters who've been covering the events in East Palestine. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. How has train company Norfolk Southern taken responsibility for the derailment and its aftermath? How are public officials responding? We'll also hear from a resident who's still displaced. Later in the show, a conversation with two poets. One is Jewish, the other Arab-American. A coincidence between their books drew them together where they found other threads of commonality. That conversation is coming up. First, the news. It is The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us and a happy Monday to all of you. For some, it may feel as though the divide between the Jewish and Arab communities is insurmountable. The conflict in Gaza is causing political rifts across the globe playing out on college campuses and even in the halls of local governments like Akron and Cleveland. The backdrop of that international conflict makes it all the more striking that Philip Metris, an Arab-American poet based in Cleveland, and Jessica Jacobs, a Jewish poet living in Asheville, North Carolina, have connected over their two new books of poetry. The book, one from Metris and one from Jacobs, just happened to feature the same image, the same photograph on the cover, a complete coincidence from the publishing houses. Book critic for the Washington Post, Ron Charles, wrote in a profile for the two books, quote, I know it's only a coincidence, but in this troubled era, I'm desperate for signs and wonders. Each book leans into the faith of the author, explores themes of family history, ancestry, immigration, and belonging. And we're going to start our show today by speaking with both of these poets. Stay with us as later in the hour, a look back at the toxic train derailment in East Palestine one year later. But with me now to discuss their new books of poetry and bridging cultural divides are Philip Metris, a local poet who also directs the Peace, Justice and Human Rights Program at John Carroll University. Phil, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I'm so happy to be here, Jenny. And Jessica Jacobs joins us by phone from New York. She's a poet as well as the founder and executive director of a nonprofit literary organization called Yetzirah, a hearth for Jewish poetry. Jessica, welcome to The Sound of Ideas. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Glad to have you both. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. Philip, your new book of poetry is titled Fugitive Backslash Refuge. It deals a lot with your heritage and your family's journey to America. Why was that the theme you chose to tackle in this collection of poetry? I actually didn't begin with thinking about Um, my own family story. But in the 2010s, you probably remember that human migration, refugees became a huge uh, international story. And I was so upset by all of these stories, um, hearing them on the news over and over again. And I was trying to figure out like why that was. And part of it was, is it's horrible that people are forced to leave their homes and homelands. Um, 
and seeing those images on the news, boats, you know, uh, going under in the Mediterranean, people dying. Um, but then I realized as I began to process a little bit more that not only was it a human rights disaster, of course, and in some sense a human disaster, but it was also deeply connected to my own family's story, which was that my great-grandfather was exiled from Lebanon. It was forced out because of some disputes that I, I can't go into um, sure. for the show, but uh, he ended up in Mexico uh, where he started a new life with his family and was uh, was assassinated or murdered at his store in Mexico in 1923. They emigrated north to the United States. So mm. I really was thinking a lot about how so much family trauma is part of our stories of migration to the United States. And I wanted to explore that as a way of helping uh, readers and myself understand you know, the losses that people have had when they lose homelands and, and trying to find a new home. And Jessica, your book also deals with your family's heritage, but you've called the collection, quote, a conversation with the book of Genesis. What do you mean by that? Um, So this began with my study of Torah and wanting to really understand that ancient text. And um, what the book does is it actually goes section by section through the book of Genesis and asks questions of it, investigates these stories, and what I found I was deeply surprised by was that this very, very old, old, these old stories spoke to my immediate life and helped me better understand the stories of what was happening in my daily life and my family's history, but also helped me look out into the world um, to see the refugee situation that, that Phil is referencing, but also, um, you know, the ongoing situation with climate refugees. It helped me look at systemic racism, like all of these different issues, um, but bound to this ancient text. And it's so interesting that both of you seem to um, focus on the idea of movement and the hardships of a family forced to move or choosing to move on their own and what the impetus is for that movement. uh, you know, which is probably the story of lots of immigrants all over the world. Totally. It's, it's, a, it's a human story. It's a great human story. But the question is, like, um, how does that instigate? How does that begin? Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, for sure. let's talk about the covers. So this is what initially bound Jessica and Philip. Uh, you both chose the same image for your book of poetry. Now, since we are an audio um, medium, there are some who can watch us through the Ohio channel who might be streaming us right now. But, uh, Phil, why don't you go ahead and describe what I'm looking at here on the cover of your book, Fugitive Refuge? Uh, Sure. So this is a photographic um, representation of Chiharo Shioto's exhibition installation called The Key in the Hand, which it's such a strange picture. What we see is we see a boat sort of tilted upward as if to the sky and surrounded by and sort of enfolded in this cloud, which is this red thread, um, which is covered in keys. Um, All of this is a little bit hard to see the first time you look at it. All you're, you're seeing is this prow of this boat sort of tilted upward in this cloud of red with something in them. But it was just such a powerful image to me of um, that echoed this story of uh, migrants, you know, fleeing on boats, 
Um, you know, Jessica has her own sort of reading of it, which which I think you should hear as well. Um, that brought her to it, but I was just moved by this: the delicacy of it, the uh, precarity of it, the entanglement of it. Yeah, it's very much this powerful image of the front of a boat emerging from you know what I assume are waters. Uh, surrounded by this shroud of red. I thought it was a painting when I first looked at the image, but to hear that it's a a photograph is really striking. Jessica, what did you love about the image? Why did you choose it for your book? And then let's talk about how you connected over it. I mean, for me, so I I found that I was weaving my own life into these biblical stories. And I began searching for a female textile artist and found Shiota. And like Philip was absolutely struck by how, how visceral, right? That bright red. Um, and she also speaks about the strings and the keys as a form of memory, right? Each key holds the memory of the person who held it. And then memory as a means of communication, which feels very much like what you know I've been trying to do with my poetry. And then, of course, in the book of Genesis, you have that very archetypal story of Noah's Ark, right? And this idea of being in need of some type of salvation um, when the waters are rising, which in so many ways we're seeing happen right now, literally and figuratively. So then tell me how you connected, and then I'd love to know how your faith, which is very present in each of your books, was something that you bonded over and have discussed. Who wants to take that question? Um, Well, my publicist, uh, Cassie Murray, um, actually alerted me. Phil uh, shared the image of his beautiful book uh, and said, um, you might need to sit down because (laughs) um, you you have the same image um, on your cover. And I had admired his work for a very long time. And I was, I was, you know, I was scared. I was scared it would be upsetting to him. And instead, it's become this beautiful ongoing conversation um, for which I'm really grateful. Yeah, totally. I just laughed. I mean, it it was just like, are you kidding me? We spend so long trying to craft or find the perfect image to speak to our book and to know that there was a twin out there. It just made me laugh. It seemed totally absurd and sort of beautiful in a way. Sure. There's like a symbiosis to it. Yeah, absolutely. Jessica, I mentioned your founding of the Yetzirah organization, which describes itself as a literary organization dedicated to fostering and supporting a community space for Jewish poets. Tell me why you felt it was necessary to create the organization in space, and what do Jewish poets get out of this community? I I think for me, I felt shut out of my religion, the faith I was born into of Judaism for a very long time. And it was through poetry, through study that I found my way back in. And Judaism has changed me as both a person and a poet. And I founded Yetzirah to be able to share that with others. Um, And I think oftentimes, because we live in a largely secular world, um, that I, I think that People of many faiths feel like that's not necessarily something that they can delve into completely in in their writing. Um, So what I've been finding um, in our first year of existence is that poets will come to us and say, this is the first time that I can fully show up as both a poet and as a Jew and Mm -hmm. see how those parts of myself speak to each other. 
such important parts. I mean, they're intrinsic to your existence. Absolutely. So to be able to celebrate them through your writing um, seems to be, uh, you know, completely important. Phil, I'd love to hear how your faith, um, um, you know, is, is celebrated in your writing. For sure. I mean, uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, but like Jessica, I've been a seeker my whole life, which means that um, I haven't always felt comfortable within the confines of uh, tr a traditional institutional faith. Um, and so I was wrestling all the time with these questions of faith. And um, I think it's so funny that uh, both of us are, are wrestlers with faith. And, and in fact, that's the term Israel comes from the idea of to wrestle with God in a sense. Um, and so it, it took a long time of my being a disobedient, a prodigal, um, before I felt comfortable identifying as a, as a Catholic poet, because there's so much history and so much institutional baggage that comes with a faith as old, a religion as old as that. Um, but as I've grown older, I found such solace in, um, in a faith life, and I've needed it mm -hmm. very much. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's both a comfort and a scourge, and an invitation to, um, to try to understand how I'm connected to, to everyone else and to the most ultimate things. Jessica, I'd love to hear uh, a piece uh, from you, from your new uh, collection of poetry, Unalone. Um, and then I'm going to ask Phil to read from his book as well. So why don't you start, Jessica? So for me, one of the things when I came back to Judaism and to, um, to religion in general that I'm kind of wrestling with and fascinated by is the idea of prayer. Um, and I feel like in a way, for a long time, poetry has been my prayer. Mm. Um, and so this poem sounds like an instruction manual, but I think if you hear the title with a question mark, it's, it's a little more accurate. So, how to pray. Forget ecstasy, that easy leap outside the body. Our bodies are already up on blocks, listing and unsightly in the yard. No, the way to God is not around the world, but through it. So dig your heels into your heels, flex your fists, your jaw. Then release to become for an instant all year. Listen out, listen up, to branch sawing branch like a giant violin. Listen in, there's your blood steady loop the loop. Cue eyes, a seizure of light through the leaves and tongue slick of iron from a nicked gum and once again your five last little tooth on its last little strand wagging with your breath like a swing now nose breathe in the dirt a stir as it is with beetles and rot and light seeking shoots and finally be all skin like a kid's face pressed to an aquarium window, presence up so hard to the edge of your husk, you're joined with the wind rivering the cool air to silk. Only then should you give yourself to joy. Dive from the twin heights of your eyes. And that tiny pool below, the one you're hurtling toward, it's not God, well, not 
Exactly. It's you. One breath deeper than you've ever been. One breath closer to the heated, heedful world. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you. Philip, I'd love to ask you to read a, a, a poem from your book as well. Absolutely, yeah. What, what a wonderful poem. And it's just so earthy and so embodied. And that's, that's what I think great poems can do is, you know, bring us back to the earth and back to our breath. It's very visceral, too. Totally, totally, yeah. So this poem is called Devotional. It's actually the last poem in the book. It is inspired by a Muslim prayer, actually. and But you'll hear in it echoes of the uh, St. Patrick prayer, and, uh, you know, basically every tradition has a tradition of, uh, every tradition has a language of light. So devotional. Light my face and light the flesh of my flesh. Light each my eyes and light inside my sight. Light the light that makes me light in the bones and in my hands light and in my loins light. And light your light before and behind me above and beneath me, light to my right and light to left, light to my enemies who in the moral dark will use my light against me, light the dull swords of my ribs, the thick fist within, light the blood-hot rooms pulsing there, light the gates when they swing wide to the stranger, light more light on my tongue, in the light light more light, in the black light, and when it's time to snuff this wick, light that light wow also <laughs> really visceral i love the line light the light that makes me light in my bones um and and the fact that you um we're running out of time unfortunately but uh, you know i want to close out with one question to jessica the fact that uh philip garnered from a muslim prayer and 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 you're talking about prayer um from your jewish faith um how do you think this is important with the back ground and, um, you know, the context of what's happening in Israel and Gaza with the uh, war against Hamas right now and the importance of finding our commonality in our prayer or just our existence for those who, who uh, you know, are agnostic or atheist. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I valued most um, in my conversations with Philip and in his poems is he's always asking hard questions. Um, and I think right now in a time when it's easy to be so reactive and to try to just take one side or the other. When you sit in the deep time of an ancient faith, of an ancient text, it tells you that it's not just one people against another, but that we can grieve for the loss of lives in both Israel and Gaza. Um, it's, not, it's not but, it's and. Um, and we need to, to really reach across anything that divides us and try and listen. Poets Jessica Jacobs and Philip Metris, thanks to both of you for talking to us today and sharing some of your stories and reading uh, at least one of your poems to us. Uh, really moving. I appreciate both of your Thanks time. for having us, Jenny. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah, to, good to talk you. with you, Jessica. Yeah, good to talk with you too, Phil. Thank you. Time now for a quick break, but on the other side, we'll look back at the toxic train derailment in East Palestine one year later. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us this hour. 
This February 3rd marked the one-year anniversary since a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine. So that anniversary was this past Saturday. That derailment, the controlled burn of those chemicals, and the aftermath went on to become one of the most closely watched stories of 2023. Residents complained of, and still do, of health systems. Norfolk Southern's practices came under file from rail safety advocates. Public officials were lambasted for not responding in a timely fashion, with President Biden planning his first trip to the area for later this month, and environmental groups raised alarms over the safety of soil and drinking water. And while the derailment occurred one year ago, some of those aspects remain top of mind for people living in and around East Palestine now. For the rest of the hour today, we're going to look back at what's happened in and around East Palestine over the past 12 months. With me to do that is Abigail Botar, Akron Cannon reporter here at Ideas from Public Media, who has exhaustively covered the situation in East Palestine. Abigail, great to see you in the studio. It's great to be here. We also have Julie Grant. She is a reporter and managing editor of the Allegheny Front, a program covering environmental issues in western Pennsylvania. Julie, welcome back to The Sound of Ideas. Hi there. Thanks. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for our guests, you can call 866-578-0903. Or 216-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. Abigail, I gave a brief summary of what occurred last February, but can you first remind people of what kind of chemicals this Norfolk Southern train was carrying and why it was so worrisome to residents? Yeah, so the train was carrying vinyl chloride. That's the main one that people have been concerned about and that we've talked about, and that's used to create PVC pipes. The train also had butyl acrylate, benzene, and a couple other chemicals, Um, but the reason people have been so concerned about vinyl chloride is that it's a carcinogen. So residents especially have been worried about the risk of cancer due to exposure and some other symptoms that vinyl chloride and the other chemicals can cause include dizziness, skin and eye irritation, coughing. Those are certainly things that we've heard from residents that they've been experiencing. And so, Abigail, it wasn't essentially just the fact that the train derailed and chemicals were released. It was then what seemed like a pretty quick response from the company to create create a controlled burn of these chemicals. So tell me more about that and the concerns stemming from that. Yeah, so it was a couple days later that Governor Mike DeWine issued a press release saying that there had been this temperature drastic drastic temperature shift, which created an environment for a catastrophic tanker failure that could lead to an explosion with deadly shrapnel traveling up to a mile away and releasing fumes. Um, And the concern was that the five tanker cars carrying the vinyl chloride were going to explode, essentially. Um, So that's what we were told. That was why there was such a strict evacuation. And that was the big, big mushroom cloud that we saw in all those pictures. Sure. Um, And After that, residents kind of questioned the need to do that, and uh, we kind of learned a lot more about that when the National Transportation Safety Board came to East Palestine last summer and held investigative hearings. We found out that uh, not all the information by experts from the scene were conveyed to the incident commander, um, especially the expert advice from people from OxyVinyl, which is the company that owned the vinyl chloride on the train, they did not think that it was going to explode. Mm. That information was not told to the incident commander making that final decision. And at the hearing, he said he wished he had known that. But Mm. to 
the other side, Norfolk Southern and its contractors, both said that that had to happen. Even if it wasn't going to explode, it was still an unsafe condition and they had to deal with it. And they say that was the safest way to do that. And Julia, I'd love for you to add to uh, Abigail's reporting on this. What is your understanding of, of the urgency for that controlled burn and kind of the the reality of the situation once kind of, I guess you could say, the dust had settled and um, looking back on what needed to be done to manage those chemicals? Hmm. Well, I think Abigail just covered it well, that discussion at the NTSB hearing last summer where, you know, it was uh, you had the fire chief who was the head of incident command saying, look, he was in a meeting, pulled into a meeting. He's the one who's making the call and he's being told by the Ohio governor, by Norfolk Southern, you know, he has 13 minutes to decide whether or not to do this controlled burn. Wow. And you know, that's not that much time. He, And as Abigail said, he didn't hear the other side of things, as the understanding is what came out at that hearing, that the company that owned the chemicals, uh, the, owned the vinyl chloride, said we, they didn't think that, uh, oxyvinyls didn't think this was heating up, didn't think there was a danger of some kind of uncontrolled explosion, which is what he was being told by Norfolk Southern and the concerns of the Ohio governor. So... He didn't have much time. He's a local fire chief. This is all new to him. So I think, you know, that was pretty dramatic. We kind of joke in our newsroom that we should write a movie called 13 Minutes, you know, because of like what must have been going on in that 13 minutes to make that decision. And, um, and and is the implication that the controlled burn itself was the real threat to uh, human health and, and safety? I mean, that was certainly why the evacuation was because like like in uh, DeWine had said that there was the fumes were going to be very toxic. I believe that the EPA uh, the Environmental Protection Agency had said that um, if residents breathing the fumes would be bad, like there were press conferences that media were at. And I remember they ended them with them being like, leave the area now. You cannot be near the area the fumes are going to be toxic and there could be you know shrapnel you know it there was very be, dangerous right. that was the other thing yeah i remember that they were like there could be like shrapnel flying yeah. around the community and yeah because uh, if you think about an exploded train car potentially right so um, yeah and so i think that that really i think without the the vent and burn there is still concern that this was leaking into you know the streams the air but the vent and burn really you know literally blew it up <laughs> literally blew it up made i mean you could see that cloud from miles in other towns in pennsylvania and ohio and and that really i mean residents were asking why they had that had to happen and are asking what kind of impact that had on the environment and you know there weren't a lot of answers immediately and there you know we still don't have all the answers now sure Julie, let's talk about the state and federal agencies, what their position was. They started converging on East Palestine. And what did the cleanup efforts look like? And then I want to hear um, what your reporting uh, told you about how the residents were doing at the time. Yeah. So um, within hours, we're told EPA was on the, you know, U.S. EPA was on the scene monitoring the air. You know, this is after the derailment itself, monitoring the air, checking for chemicals in the air. Um, and I assume the water, I'm not actually sure if they were checking the water that early on. And, um, you know, you had the local responders there. You had responders from communities all over um, trying to help. Now you have 
emergency responders going in, some of them without like PPE, so they're not really properly protected from the chemicals. They don't really know yet what's on board. Abigail, I know you covered the NTSB hearings pretty quickly. Uh, I, I, I mean, this summer, like uh, up close, I'm curious, like <laughs> given Jenny's question, like what were what did they know they were exposed to early on, you know, when oh, they ran to the scene? They had no idea because Norfolk Southern, um, we learned this in the NTSB hearing, Norfolk Southern did not give the first responders the, um, I can't remember what the word is, but it's basically the list of what is on the train. Sure. Somehow the contractors that were like rushing to the scene that Norfolk Southern works with, they had that information. But, you know, the fire chief, the the emergency responders, EMA, emergency management agency, they did not have that list for, I don't know, they talked about it in the NTSB hearing. There was like hours of difference between when Norfolk Southern's contractors got that information and when the firefighters that were actually on the scene. I mean, and they spoke about at the hearing about how they didn't respond to the fire properly because of the chemicals. And I mean, this is a small town, rural volunteer fire department. So they do not have, you know, as much training as like the Cleveland Fire Department would have on how to respond to a chemical fire. So it was really, really interesting um, that the... Uh, communication that kind of failed at, mm-hmm. at some points in this in this process. Let's talk about the residents. So, what were they saying in the immediate aftermath of of the derailment? And I know that the evacuation orders lasted for five days. Um, what did they say when they were getting back from this evacuation? The ones who did return. I actually don't think, was the evacuation order that long? I thought it was just like two days later after the vent and burn, like within a couple of days, people were, the evacuation order okay, was Okay, I lifted. stand corrected. Yeah. Yeah, so be, and because I think that was an issue, that how quickly that happened. There are some researchers who, at least one researcher who says that evacuation order was lifted too quickly and that that potentially exposed people to one of those chemicals that Abigail mentioned earlier, butyl acrylate, because they weren't, Using the EPA wasn't using air monitors that were sensitive enough to actually capture the amount of butyl acrylate that was in buildings, and so they brought people back. And there is documentation. EPA, you know, um, Politico and E and E News found EPA documents that did show. Yeah, he, this this researcher is correct that hmm. they were using air monitors that weren't sensitive to pick this up. Um, EPA's response to that is, well, you can really smell butyl acrylate, so they could still use the smell test if it was at a level that was not safe for people. They would have smelled it, and people wouldn't have been able to stay in those buildings. And so, yeah. Oh, I was just going to add that, um, like, residents, when they came back, there was also concern about how wide the evacuation zone was. It was kind of, Mm -hmm. some people were saying it was an arbitrary number. But I remember the first time I came there for a community meeting and and people were relieved to come back home, but then almost immediately, like, very scared of the things that Julie was talking about of, oh, it smells weird. My home smells, it smells really bad. It's making me nauseous. Oh, my kids are coughing. Oh, should we be here? And the EPA is saying everything's fine, but my gut is telling me that's wrong. And I think yeah. there's just a lot of unknown in, in those first like couple weeks after that. Yeah, we talked with people who had rashes, their kids woke up, like came back after the evacuation order and their kids woke up with like burning, swollen eyes. Like when she described mm. them, they were like swollen down her face. Um, 
so I think there, there were a lot of concerns. I, I mean, Abigail, I don't know about you, but I remember being there. I was there a couple of days after, maybe a day or two after, and I could feel it in my mouth. It was a real like tingling and burning in the mouth and nose like in, in my sinuses. And I think a lot of people were experiencing that. I think that might've been the beetle acrylate in the air. Um, Did you have concerns as a journalist going into that situation and, and, and knowing that in some respects you're making yourself vulnerable to, to the environment there? Oh, yeah, I was concerned. And I, I mean, when I got home, I took off like my shoes, all my clothes, like on my porch before I brought all that into my house, because everything smelled so strongly. And I think, Abigail, we probably both talked with people who have felt like they didn't want to go back in their homes, felt like they had to get rid of all their furniture mm -hmm. and things like that, because they, you know, there are a certain number of people there who feel like it's, it's contaminated. Mm -hmm. L Abigail, I know that you spoke to a resident, Jamie Wallace, who uh, spoke to you about her experience over the past year, not just the aftermath, about how much or how little has changed. What did she have to say? Yeah, I mean, the first thing she said when I asked, how are you, was that there's still this feeling of helplessness. I mean, a year later, we have some answers that Julie and I both have reported on, but I mean, there's still these things that residents have been calling for for so long about, like, in-home testing that's independent from what Norfolk Southern is doing, um, residential soil testing. There's just this lack of trust. And so I think we have a, we can hear from her and what she had to say, but really just a sense of helplessness right now. Honestly, it almost feels worse than it did a year ago. Um, we're still asking the same questions a year later. And at least a year ago, we had hope. Yeah, so kind of feeling hopeless right now. Wow. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to return um, and continue this conversation. And we're going to talk to a resident of East Palestine who is still displaced because of this situation. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. We'll be right back. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for being with us. This hour, we are looking back at the toxic train derailment that happened in East Palestine one year ago this past Saturday. With me sharing some of their excellent reporting is Julie Grant from the Allegheny Front and our own Abigail Botar here at Ideastream Public Media. If you'd like to participate in the conversation or have a question, we would love to hear from you. 216-578-0903 and 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.com. Org. Now I want to introduce another voice into our conversation, and that is of Zuja Jenis, a resident of East Palestine who's been affected by the derailment. Zuja, thanks so much for giving us some time today. Thank you. So, Zuja, you and your nine-year-old son lived about a half mile from the crash site. What were those first days and weeks like for you? And uh, tell me how you were initially and immediately impacted? So um, it was very terrifying and very confusing. Um, we had little to no communication whatsoever about what had happened, what was on the train, what we should be concerned about, what we should do. Um, we got sick. My son and I got very sick the very first night before there were any mandatory evacuations, so we ended up having to leave and go about 20 miles away into Beaver Falls. We were there for a few days until they did the burn on the vinyl chloride tanks. Mm. And 
we actually had to eventually evacuate from there, too, because that plume traveled all the way into Beaver County, Pennsylvania, and that evacuation radius was never expanded. And, and like I said, we left before there was even even that. And um, it was it was very scary. So tell me, don't have any answers. tell me what you said. You, you both got very sick. You spent the night at your house that first day is what you're saying. We tried to. It was about five hours after the derailment. The derailment happened at about 9 o'clock at night, and um, we tried to shelter in place because we were, we were a little less than a mile, and we were right around a mile, and that's when they announced that it was an optional evacuation, mm-hmm. but we didn't know there was chemicals involved whatsoever. Right. And the rest of the town was just supposed to shelter in place. Well, we were closer to the, the school, which was a, an evacuation center at, the, at that point. So we decided to try to shelter in place, and that's when, about three in the morning, I started smelling this smell that was like sour, Drano, sweet bleach kind of smell. And wow. I immediately got very sick within a few minutes, a very strong headache, um, very strong nausea. Um, my, my lips went numb. I had burning eyes, nose, throat, and I started smelling the smell. And then my son woke up out of a dead sleep. Um, I had never went to sleep because the sirens, nonstop sirens. Wow. Um, and what was your son feeling? You said he felt sick as well? Yeah, so he woke up out of a, out of a, a dead sleep projectile vomiting, gasping for air, and um, the smell was a lot stronger in his, in his room. And at that point, it kind of clicked with me with the smell because up until that minute, I thought I was just, you know, giving myself anxiety. Oh, I'm sleep deprived. Like, but they didn't tell us to watch for anything or be aware of anything. I wasn't associating that smell with, with the fire because it didn't smell like a fire. Um, but when, whenever he got sick, we immediately left. And uh, I didn't know if we were going to have to go to the ER at that point because my son also has asthma oh. and he was gasping for air, you know, and I, I just really didn't know what to do. And your survival instincts kick in. But he was he was very distraught. Um, and, and so was I. So you take off. I mean, you leave uh, and, 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 and you go to a, a neighboring town. Um, tell me kind of what. Um, your movement looked like after that? Because I know that you are still displaced. Is that correct? That is correct. Unfortunately, we, we lost our home entirely to the chemical contamination. We were never be able, we'll never be able to go back. Um, but we, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, we evacuated into Beaver Falls. Um, and then we had to evacuate from Beaver Falls because of the burn and that's just been completely downplayed. And so we went further into Pennsylvania at that point. I left that hotel because it was right across the street from this the Shell plant, which produces a bunch of pollution, and it was malfunctioning my at goodness. the same time. So, you know, I felt like I, I couldn't escape this. Like, there was nowhere for my family to breathe safe air. So we evacuated that hotel um, and into further, again, into Pennsylvania, into to Cranberry, where we've mostly been since then in a hotel in Cranberry, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour from East Palestine. But we tried to do an Airbnb for about a week. Um, and Norfolk has been covering um, these relocation bills, but it's not guaranteed an end date. Like It's not guaranteed to even get reimbursed for what you spend. Um, they tell people different things every time you go in. Mm. And uh, so we tried to do this Airbnb for about a week, and the guy found out we were being reimbursed by Norfolk, so he started charging us more. Mm-hmm. So that didn't work out. And uh, we've basically just been in um, an extended stay hotel in Cranberry, Pennsylvania since then, just trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. Our our house was on a list to be cleaned by the EPA, and then that that ended up not happening. And it wasn't even 
hazmat, nor did it do air vents or anything like that. And I had tried to go back into my hotel or my home weekly, and I was never able to even exist for within. With, I wasn't able to exist more than a few minutes in my home before getting sick again, and, and that smell never went away. All of our belongings had that smell. I couldn't get it out. So over the summer, I decided to just but move on like obviously no help was coming they weren't making it right we were right by one of the heavily contaminated creeks so we've just been in the hotel trying to just wait that out until that point and now I'm just looking for somewhere else to go where hopefully it doesn't happen again and I mean everything's going to be on my own dime Norfolk's not paying me to you know have a home or um, helping replace any of our belongings so I mean it's just been kind of waking up every day and trying to figure out what, what's going to happen to your family. Um, and we're not, we're just not getting help from Norfolk. They're, they're not, they can't be trusted. They're not making anything right. There's, there shouldn't be people in hotels a year later. It makes no sense how they're doing things. They've spent over like $40,000 to keep my family in a hotel, but we still have nothing to actually have a real home um, or replace anything that was contaminated. I'm going to ask Abigail quickly, you know, uh, Zuja says Norfolk Southern not to be trusted. Um, it, the company said it's committed and invested more than $103 million in the community, including nearly 21 directly to residents. Um, um, does this messaging, you know, essentially gel with what residents are saying? I mean, it depends on who you ask. I'm um, There's a lot of people like Zuja who say similar things that they, they don't feel supported by Norfolk Southern, that, like I said, people have been calling for independent, not not something that Norfolk Southerners contractors are doing, independent soil, water, and air testing that they feel they can trust more. Um, and then also, like Zuzer said, complaints that the railroad hasn't covered moving costs or reimburse them for their lost items. That's something that I've heard a lot. Norfolk Southern has told me that everything is a case-by-case basis, so that mm. there's there's not like a one-size-fits-all uh, fix that they've been giving residents. So that's the that's the railroad perspective. Um, I mean, I was in town last week, and I did hear residents that said they're really happy with what Norfolk is doing. That they look around town, they see improvements that Norfolk that the town never would have been able to afford. That Norfolk Southern is doing, like upgrading this beautiful park that they have and doing some water line fixes. So I, I mean, there's this kind of divide in town with people who kind of are just ready to move on and you know, get Norfolk out of their town and move on with life and people who are are still scared, who maybe are sick, who don't feel safe there. Zuja, I'm wondering how um, has this past year been for your nine-year-old boy? I'm assuming he's 10 now. Um, um, How has his experience been um, over the past year? Is he going to school? Yeah, so it's been very traumatizing for us because Norfolk has Initially, it was supposed to be a six-week thing, and then it went to an eight-week thing, and then a 16-week thing, and we've never been given an end date. Like, if I had known in the beginning we would have been in a hotel for this long, I would not have chosen that route. So, in the meantime of hoping we can go back to our house, hoping they can clean it up, I decided to have my son do an online program because I I didn't feel safe with the schools the way that they were. Um, In regards of, you know, they didn't have a proper cleaning. There was, I've heard complaints from parents and teachers alike that kids were getting sick in the schools immediately and I just didn't feel safe sending my son back so we did an online program and it was supposed to just be temporary my son has an IEP before in East Palestine he would have like several different teachers assistants and different kind of tutoring 
Now it's just up to me. I um, We've been struggling a lot. The online program is it's just way too much for a student with special needs in a family under, you know, severe stress and, you know, not having a home, not having an end date, basically having to barter for, for your basic needs from a, a company that, you know, poisons you. And, you know, it's, it's terrifying. And uh, my son's really, really struggling um, with the school aspect. And, you know, some of his friends stayed in town. Sure. Others of Others had to leave town and were hospitalized because they were hemorrhaging blood. And, you know, he, he's talked to them. You know, they were telling him, like, it was so scary. Like, kids talk. Like, um, that, that's that got to be <laughs> – I don't even know how to process that as an adult. So I can't even imagine how he feels. And, sure. Um, and not, like I said, just not having an end date. Not like they just were like, hey, you're going to be in a hotel for this point, and then we're going to put you in a home, and you're going to be able to live your life again. You're, you're going to be able to go to school again. You're going to be able to, like – you know, continue with life. Like, I, I don't want to be in a hotel anymore. I've been telling Norfolk since the, the summer when I decided I can't wait anymore, that I want to move on. I need my son in a school. Right. I've been taking off time for work because I have to be a full-time teacher. I, I can't even walk away because my son needs so much help. And I so, and uh, I got to assume, you know, being a parent of a, a special needs child and, and having to um, navigate the difficulties of an IEP, which is an individualized education plan, um, you know, despite living in a temporary shelter, as, as essentially you and your son are, is already hard enough. So, um, Abigail, I mean, excuse me, Zuzia, last question um, for you. What would you want people to know one year out about the the continuation of this situation for residents like you in East Palestine? I would say that Norfolk isn't stepping up to the plate. And the major declaration, disaster declaration that Governor DeWine had requested back in June even stated that he didn't believe Norfolk was doing what they promised and and the fact that there's still families in hotels with nowhere to go and that money went straight to my front hotel desk no i didn't get that money to pocket to start over um i want people to know that like there are still people in town right now that can't get answers about their medical issues i you know i've been having some issues and so has my son since since the situation and nobody can tell us what to do about it or if we're going to get cancer from it so i mean we need i think the best step for us is to acknowledge that Norfolk's not the best handled or to handle this situation. Um, the government needs to step up and um, I, I want to move on with it too, just as much as business does in town. But like you need to have a healthy population to be able to support those businesses long-term. Right. So we need that major disaster declaration. Um, we need the government to step in. You know, people can't just be on hold and, and waiting their whole lives and, and be living in fear the rest of their lives. So, But this could happen again. There's nothing that's changed anything to prevent this. Nobody's even monitoring our bodies to, for the next time it happens. Zuza Jenis, a resident of East Palestine, I, I wish you luck and thanks so much for um, speaking with me this morning. Yeah, thank you. Julie, I want to ask you, um, where are we now with um, kind of the overseeing of people's medical conditions and the monitoring of these toxins in the environment near and around East Palestine? Yeah, well, so this was some of the reporting that we've been working on more recently was why... So when we talk with public health health experts, they would say 
you know, several of them would say like, there should have been biological testing immediately. Like part of the emergency response should be testing urine or blood or breath of people exposed to see the acute level of exposure. Because that way you can track later sort of as a cohort, you could see how that might impact people over time. Maybe you would find nothing, but if people had this high level of exposure, you'd be able to track it. But that testing was not done, and we were able to track down like a webinar that was given through the Pennsylvania Department of Health to medical providers, because people were coming in and saying, oh, we have rashes, we have respiratory issues, and doctors didn't know, should we be testing them for chemical exposure? And in late February, what they were being told by the Pittsburgh Poison Center and the CDC and others was, no, don't test for chemical exposure, just treat the symptoms. And mm. public health experts are saying, that was a mistake. Like that was a loss for this community because now there really won't be a way to sort of track, like Juju was saying, over time, if, you know, if there are problems that come from this or not. Um, another big thing was like, after September 11th, for example, there was a health registry created. So after the Twin Towers fell, there was lots of chemicals and particulate matter. And they immediately, like within weeks, started a health registry. Right. And that has been used as the basis for lots of study, for being able to track like long-term asthma that they can track in certain people back to that incident, um, in cancers that they can track back to that incident. And so... Nothing like that was done here, and that's another space where public health experts say that's something that should have happened and that this community will not have and not be able to hold industry accountable, for example, for the damage that was caused, if if it is traceable like that. Yeah, I immediately thought of 9-11 um, and, and um, the first responders and firefighters who were affected by the, you know, the, the, the search for, for lives and, and cleanup afterwards. Uh, Julie Grant from the Allegheny Front, Abigail Botar from Ideas Dream Public Media. I appreciate your reporting on this situation, and uh, thank you both for talking to me this morning. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, thank you. To get the last word on today's topic, you can send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter, now X at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Tomorrow on the Sound of Ideas, we're also going to talk about environment. We're looking at Ideastream's recent series, looking at forever chemicals or PFAS. Our Jeff St. Clair will be in the studio to talk about his reporting, and we'll be joined by the executive director of the Ohio EPA. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening. I'll speak with you again tomorrow.